This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the legislature today. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us for tonight's coverage of the 2023 legislative session. The Senate Education Committee took up a bill this morning that hopes to address the hundreds of vacancies in certified teacher positions across the state. Chris Schulz has more. West Virginia has close to 1,500 vacancies for certified teachers in its schools more than double the vacancies it had just a few years ago. That's according to Senator Charles Trump, a Republican from Morgan County. He is the lead sponsor of Senate Bill 204, which would raise the base pay for teachers with less than eight years of experience. Trump said attracting new teachers with competitive pay is the state's best bet at filling the vacancies. It's not gonna be uh, easier or affordable ever for West Virginia to create a salary schedule that draws a teacher with 10 or 15 years of experience in Maryland or Virginia or Pennsylvania to come to West Virginia. Um, it would cost literally hundreds of millions of dollars. So I thought, well, let's, uh, th that's the point of this bill. I thought if we could at least goose the starting pay for teachers um, up to, you know, where they, uh, were comparable, where the pay is comparable to teachers who have been teaching and have eight years of experience, that might help. Uh, it might help us being able to chip away at uh, some of this vacancy problem. Trump called the situation in the Eastern Panhandle, where schools must compete with Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and to a certain extent, Washington, D.C., for teachers, an arms race. Starting pay in Maryland is on average more than $10,000 higher than pay for the same position in West Virginia. West Virginia Education Association President Dale Lee raised the issue of the message the bill would send to existing veteran teachers. My concern with that is you have a brand new teacher coming in and a teacher's been there eight years and they're the second year they're teaching that that beginning teacher's second year and that eight-year teacher's ninth year, they're still on the same scale and will be that way from that point on. So you're, you're eliminating an eight years of increment raises for, for those uh, educators. After the Senate floor session, Trump reiterated that the bill aims to address certified teacher shortages in the most efficient way possible. He said there is no intention to offend experienced teachers who he concedes are also underpaid. 
there has been some consideration of pay rate, general pay raise increase bills, and I'm supportive of those. Uh, you know, it's, all of it has to be uh, managed within the, uh, the boundaries of expenditures established by the budget and the governor's revenue estimate. Uh, my hope was that this bill would uh, sort of front load some of that attack to, be, to allow us to compete a little more aggressively for newly minted teachers. There are other problems, and that is that apparently uh, fewer, fewer college kids are choosing education as their primary area of study. And, and I think we uh, would be wise to examine uh, things that would um, maybe change that. He said he is open to considering any ideas that may help with the staffing shortages in the state schools. Senate Bill 204 now goes to the Senate Finance Committee for their consideration. Trump said he believes the Finance Committee will begin work on several educational bills this week when budgetary presentations conclude. It is, number one, a constitutional responsibility of the legislature to provide for thorough and efficient public education for our children. And number two, it's critically important to our future. I think everybody here agrees that the future of this state, in large degree, is dependent upon our ability to provide strong, sound public education for our children. And it's a priority of mine, and I think for all my colleagues in both houses of the legislature. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz in Charleston. The Senate completed action on five bills today, including Senate Bill 296. The bill codifies the procedures for virtual public meetings during emergencies, including proper conduct and rules for public observation and participation. A measure that authorizes Adopt-A-Trail volunteer programs for public lands, Senate Bill 4, passed the House of Delegates unanimously. The measure puts the program under the jurisdiction of the Division of Natural Resources. It's modeled on the Adopt-A-Highway and new Adopt-A-Stream initiatives, providing for cleanup, maintenance, and special events to be performed by volunteer groups on many state land trails throughout West Virginia. The bill now heads to the governor's desk for signature. Also, House Bill 3055 that restructures vocational math classes for students interested in careers in the trades of advance to third reading. The one-year class for all public school curriculum in West Virginia will feature a curriculum including fractions, measurements, reading blueprints, geometry for workforce math, and other math skills needed to succeed in the trades. That bill now heads to the Senate. Lawmakers on the House floor discuss the risks and benefits of foregoing a certificate of need for birthing centers to open in West Virginia. Appalachia Health News reporter Emily Rice has that story. Clerk will prepare the machine. After contentious debate from both sides of the aisle, House Bill 2789 passed the House of Delegates with a vote of 73 ayes, 26 nays, and one absent. Delegate Heather Tolley, a Republican from Nicholas County and co-sponsor of the bill, began by explaining that House Bill 2789 will remove the requirement for Certificate of Need for birthing centers in West Virginia. The Certificate of Need is a governmental review process that includes a determination of need, consistency with the state health plan, and financial feasibility of a new proposed health care center. 
Lead sponsor of the bill, Delegate Kathy Hess Krauss, a Republican from Putnam County, spoke from personal experience as a mother and noted promises made by lawmakers to West Virginians in the wake of the state's abortion ban last year. We just need some more access to facilities. We just told thousands of women throughout this state that they were going to have to give birth. Many of those are going to have to travel round-trip hours to get to doctors or birthing facilities, and that is adding too much to them. We need to make these closer and allow them to come in where they are able to and able to sustain. Co-sponsor of the bill, Delegate Amy Summers, a Republican from Taylor County, said expectant mothers in West Virginia need more options for care. But moms have a right to choose where they want to have their babies. And our only option is the hospital or home. Birthing centers are a great alternative in between there. Because what we saw during COVID was a huge increase in home births, where no one's monitoring that baby unless you do get a nurse midwife to come to your home uh, to provide monitoring. But our people deserve this freedom. One of the representatives who spoke in opposition to House Bill 2789 was Delegate Danielle Walker, a Democrat from Monongalia County. You're looking at an African-American woman who had several difficult births. And these birthing centers are for healthy pregnancies. But we must not turn a blind eye to what the pandemic taught us. Many West Virginians don't have a primary care physician. We always go to the specialist. Forced birth is very diverse. Pregnancy is very diverse. Discussion on House Bill 2789 continued as Delegate Gino Corelli, a Republican from Monongalia County, asked Delegate Tully about the operating procedures of birthing clinics. What would the standard operating procedure be for a birthing center if they were to come upon an emergency which would require a C-section or something like that? So they have, a, they have emergency procedures set into place. Birthing centers are usually accredited by an accrediting body, so there are certain standards. You have to have emergency care, and it would be no different than, I thought, say, you had to have transfer a ho like from a hospital to a higher level of care. You would have people there that were, were trained to take care of that emergency and have a, an, an, operating, an emergency operations plan in place to take care of those patients. House Bill 2789 passed the House of Delegates to the Senate for their consideration. Reporting for the legislature today, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Last week, the House of Delegates approved House Bill 2007. The bill would limit gender-affirming medical care for anyone under 18. During two committee hearings on the bill, lawmakers called no expert witnesses. From the Capitol now, Curtis Tate speaks with two people who know this issue. Thank you, Bob. Today we have Isabella Cortez, Gender Policy Manager for Fairness West Virginia. We also have Delegate Danielle Walker of Monongalia County. We're going to talk about House Bill 2007. Uh, Delegate Walker, I think I'll start with you. Um, uh, we've seen a, a lot of legislation like this in, in other states uh, around the country. Uh, is it sort of becoming a, a kind of litmus test for uh, Republican politics? What's your perspective on that? I don't know if it's a litmus test, but it's definitely discriminatory when it comes to health care. In a state where our health is so poor in West Virginia, 
and the amount of trans youth per capita is the highest amongst the nation, then I think that we would want to protect all mountaineers instead of bringing more discrimination. Um, Isabella, what do you, in, in the organization you work for, what are you seeing in other states? How does it compare to what, what's happening here? We are seeing um, in our work in other states, we're seeing a lot of similar bills. Um, some, some states are a little more extreme. Some states, you know, with Republican supermajorities and Republican majorities aren't as extreme. So I would place us uh, essentially kind of firmly in the middle as far as, you know, when, where these bills are running. There are plenty of states where these bills aren't running, but where they are running, we're seeing that we're kind of in the middle of the pack here. Um, Delegate Walker, in terms of, of you know the, the conversations that you had with uh, some of your colleagues, uh, you know ahead of, of the the House vote, the floor vote on on uh, HB two thousand seven, did any of them tell you, you know, hey, uh, I, I have problems with this. I don't think it's necessary. It doesn't solve any problems. I still have to vote for it though because I might get a primary challenger. Did you encounter anything like that? Yes, we encountered those things many of times. But what we also need to remember is that you are here because of the vote of 2022. You are here to make sure that you are representing people who gave you a yay vote and those who didn't. You need to understand that you are rep representing youth who does not have the ability or the right to vote as of yet. But when they do, they will remember the things and the freedoms that was taken away from them. I think that we should not be making healthcare a political chess piece. And that's what we do a lot in this state. And what happens, we get a mass exodus. When we speak about our trans youth, we must understand, not just as politicians, which I will never be, I am a peopletician, that that youth has a family in a neighborhood, in a community that supports them. And an injustice to one of us is an injustice to all. So when that child feels that they have no right and no freedom here in our mountain state, the whole family will move and leave. Well, and, and Delegate Walker on that point, uh, I was just speaking earlier to a, a, a medical professional at WVU. Uh, she, uh, she provides uh, uh, gender affirming treatments to uh, to youth uh, and, and helps their families. Uh, she was saying not, not only uh, would, would a, a law, if the bill becomes law, it would, it would cause a, a, a bit of an exodus of families who need uh, to seek this kind of care. She also said that some providers may, may leave too. What, what kind of problems does that create? We already have so many vacancies amongst the state. With OBs and primary care doctors, we are now extending the scope of practice to nurses. So West Virginia, I ask you, do you not look at the numbers that we are an unhealthy state? But now we're just unwelcoming and it's time for it to stop. Can we make sure that all mountaineers are free and it's not a specific group of mountaineers are free? Can we truly fight for the freedoms for all? Equality is 2000 late, we want equity. So if someone can go to a doctor to get a penal implant, then I expect for a child to get their gender affirming care. 
Isabella, what are you hearing from, from parents and families and also medical providers? What have they told you about the impact of something like this? Um, you know, that's a great question, Curtis. So, you know, we, as part of our work, we work with, you know, the families of trans youth. We work with trans um, teens and trans adults and doctors because, you know, time and again, every, every you know, credible medical organization in the country and the state says that this care is life-saving, it's medically necessary. And you know, this bill, we're talking about like prescription medications that are safe, effective, and reversible. We're not talking about, you know, some other, like some absurd thing that like mutilation is something that we've heard from the other side. We're not talking about stuff like that. We're talking about prescription medication that these teens and families have decided that this, you know, with the help of a multidisciplinary team that includes doctors and psychologists and the family, that this is the best option for them at this time. And what we want and what doctors want and what the families want for these trans youth and trans teens is for them to be able to thrive and succeed and that this care is how they will be able to do that. Uh, well, another thing this doctor from WVU told me earlier today, I, I asked her about the, the, the word detransition. I hadn't heard that until it came up in the debate. Uh, she said that that rarely happens. Is that your understanding? Our understanding of detransition, and I want to make clear that when we're talking about detransition, there are, um, it's a bit of a, I don't want to say a misnomer, but um, anyone who starts transition and then stops for any reason, typically gets lumped in with this group called detransitioners. And it's a group. It's a group. Yes, it's it's a small group. Uh, I would say of the 97 um, of all the people that transition, maybe three percent stop. And of that three percent, a lot of people that do stop, they don't stop because they're not trans. They stop because of. They, they, they pause their transition. So they're not saying, I'm not trans. They're saying, right now, I don't have the support. I don't have, you know, that could be family support, that could be financial support, that could be support from the medical community, that could be support from the state saying that you can't get this care at all. If this bill were to pass, any trans youth, you know, any trans teen that's on this, you know, on these, you know, gen have, who has gender affirming care would be by definition a detransitioner. So you know, we have to take into account that a lot of people who detransition are simply pausing until there is another, uh, until they get to a better place where they can resume that care. Um, and of, of that percentage, there is a very small percentage of people that do detransition and go, you know, I'm not trans. And generally, that's not youth. That's generally adults. And you know, we want them to be supported and have access to good medical care to guide them through that process as well. But the idea that a, you know detransitioning is this huge phenomena that people go and then decide, oh, I was wrong. That is, that is not happening. The majority of people who detransition are simply pausing until they're in a better and safer place to continue. We've been talking about. Um the, some of the, 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 the harms that could result potentially as, as a result of this legislation should it become law. What, what are some things that the legislature could do or should be doing to support uh, transgender youth and their families? Well, how about you support the whole queer community? How about you pass the Fairness Act? How about we make sure that we are really looking at each and every one of our community members 
When you look at the marginalized community, we're included. LGBTQIA plus community. But why every year do we discriminate the T in that? Trans youth in sports, now trans youth in healthcare. Where is the hate coming from? Where is the misinformation coming from? Why do we keep judging our children? They're not future leaders, they're our present leaders because they are living their true selves. They are living their lives abundantly. When I have a child to come up to me and speak about issues, it is not in the back of my mind, are they a biological boy or girl? In my mind is that I love them, whether they use the pronouns of she, her, he, him, they, or them. We must not also exclude non-binary folks out of this conversation. Um, Isabella, can, can you explain for folks what the fairness law uh, is and what, what it would do if, the, if it were to ever uh, pass the legislature? Absolutely. So the Fairness Act is a piece of legislation that would add sexual orientation and gender identity to the Human Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act, I believe is, is what it is in West Virginia. So what that would mean is, is that West Virginians, by West Virginia law, would have employment protections, they would have housing protections, and they would be protected in public spaces. So for instance, um, if a, uh, you know, an LGBTQ person would want to go out to eat, at a restaurant, they would not have to worry throughout the entire state, they would be safe from being kicked out because they are LGBTQ. Um, you know, this bill has uh, been introduced multiple, like I think what the last eight um, years, last eight or nine years, it always has bipartisan support. We have Democrat and Republican sponsors of this bill almost every year. Um, as Delegate uh, Walker said, you know, like that is one of the best things that this legislature could do to actually protect trans youth and protect, you know, these teens and their families. Delegate Walker, in this um, uh, uh, this public hearing that was held last week, yes. uh, we heard from. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, doctors, counselors, uh, people who, who work with LGBTQ or rather transgender youth and their families. Um, how, how many of your colleagues actually were there to hear these, these testimonies? So I have to be fair to my colleagues. We still had committee meetings. I had to leave at the end of the public hearing. But we had some colleagues who did not have committee assignments and this chose not to attend the public hearing. It's not something that is mandated that we do have to attend public hearings. But I feel if you represent your constituency, you should get uncomfortable and listen to hear and be an active listener. And evidently by the votes, we had a lot of folks that had their minds made up. But we don't do these public hearings for them. We do it for all the other people in West Virginia. We do it for the advocates. We do it for the physicians. We want people to understand around the state that we are not ignorant when it comes to healthcare and protecting freedoms for all. I think we have about two minutes left or so. Um, maybe if each of you could just take a minute and, you know, and say uh, something that, that you think, uh, something else that you think we should know um, that maybe we haven't discussed. I would like to kind of bounce off of what Doug Walker said there with, you know, people not showing up to the public hearing. And, you know, we had doctors, um, our allies, our community 
these, these experts on this kind of care time and again have shown up and said, hey, we're here to answer, answer questions. And a lot of delegates weren't interested in listening to them. The lead sponsor of HB 2007, Delegate Jeff Foster, admitted in committee, and I believe on the, at least in committee, that he was Googling this information. I mean, you know, this is my job. I do this work every day. If I showed up to my job and didn't know what I was talking about and had to Google basic information, that would be embarrassing. So, you know, the experts are clear on this, and it's really disappointing to see that our delegates, some of our delegates, are unwilling to listen to the experts. Okay. Uh, uh, I guess we're out of time at this point. <laughs> Sorry, Delegate Walker. Um, but but thank you uh, thank you so much for for joining us today both of you uh, really appreciate it and back to you Bob. Thanks for that Curtis. It's now up to the Senate to act on House Bill 2007. Tune into the Legislature today Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily in our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wvpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Bob Brunner. Thanks for joining us, and have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, committed to teaching, research, and professional training with degree programs in multiple locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at Hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at Segra.com.